Dr. Gunita Singh Bala currently serves as executive director at the 1947 Partition Archive. Previously, she was an experimental condensed matter physicist and completed her tenure as a postdoctoral researcher at the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory and the University of California at Berkeley in December of 2012. She studied quantum confinement at interfaces that include oxide, heterostructures, and domain walls in multiferroics. After a 2008 visit to the oral testimony archives at the Hiroshima Peace Memorial, she was inspired and began interviewing partition survivors in 2010. In 2011, the 1947 partition archive was born. She has personally interviewed over 100 partition survivors and rallied volunteers to join in building the grassroots foundations of this people-powered organization. In 1947, her father's family migrated from Lahore to Amritsar on August 14th. Gunita Singh Bala, welcome to The One. Thank you so much. Uh, it's so great to have you on, and um, I I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I wonder if you can start by just telling us more about uh, what the 1947 Partition Archive is. So the Partition Archive is actually uh, designed to eventually be a central resource of information on partition, uh, with a huge focus on oral history and the people's history. So basically, our first project, um, and it's a pretty massive project, is to document oral histories of people who witnessed partition, so people who actually remember that time period of 1947. So it could be people who actually went through the migration or people who um, you know, witnessed the migration happening around them but didn't have to move. Mm. And so it turns out, actually, that pretty much the entire subcontinent of South Asia was affected, even though... Um, you know, in popular literature, we only think of the areas surrounding the Radcliffe line, like Punjab and Bengal being affected. Yes, mm -hmm. those were more heavily affected, but it turns out that the entire subcontinent actually had in and out migrations um, to some extent or the other. How does the partition archive work? Well, um, so we devised this method of crowdsourcing oral histories back in 2010 before we were actually even an organization. Um, so what that means is so I came from the world of physics where crowdsourcing uh, is a known process. In fact, the word crowdsourcing, uh, you know, it's an ancient concept, but the word crowdsourcing was developed, uh, invented at University of California and Berkeley's physics department. And that's where I used to be before I started this work. Um, so basically, that, that word came from solving the problem of pr protein folding by spreading it across, you know, millions of people's computers and getting each person to solve mm. a little bit of the problem. It's a problem mm. that computers could not solve because it required nonlinear thinking or nonlinear calculations. But anyway, uh, coming to partition, so I was familiar with the concept. And, you know, in 2010, uh, we were faced with this problem of all of these people who remembered partition being all over the world and they were disappearing really fast, and we did not have yeah. money. We were not like this big organization. We were just a group of random people. And we thought, well, hey, what if um, we use technology to teach lots and lots of people how to record stories? So they go out in their own communities and record stories. Um, and then we can use social media to spread the word. 
And so on a shoestring budget, or actually no budget at all, mostly just um, at the time, our own uh, <laughs> our our own pocket money and time. Uh, mm-hmm. So we went out and started recruiting people to record stories, and then also um, recruiting elders who wanted to tell their stories. What then happens to these these stories once they reach the archive? Yeah. So um, just to kind of go back to the early days a little bit to give you the full picture. Um, yeah. So basically, you know, first we didn't know what we were doing was even called oral history, but eventually we figured it out. And then we went and got help from the experts at the regional oral history office at UC Berkeley and Stanford University. And we got their support um, to help devise, you know, proper methodologies for recording oral histories. And uh, once we did that, we organically devised a method for receiving the stories and archiving them. And because it was a what you call a born digital project, we decided to archive them in the cloud because it was an international project. And then you know, the cloud is not based anywhere in particular. Um, so, so the oral histories go into the cloud. There's now a team in Berkeley, California, uh, that a team of interns um, and staff people that looks at all the material that comes in carefully um, goes through each story with a fine-tooth comb, makes sure, you know, make sure that it fits the criteria for a proper oral history interview, and then they archive it. Now, we do teach people how to record these stories, so um, they do have a checklist on what makes a proper oral history interview, and they have some training on that. Um, well, right now it is a free workshop that you can take online, and it's administered either twice a month or four times a month, depending on the traffic that particular month and interest. So every weekend, usually on a Saturday, and depending on your time zone, it can be morning or evening. Um, one of the one of our team members will teach an oral history workshop. Hmm. So that's amazing. So what kind of stuff are would would do folks learn in these workshops to to um, ensure that the quality of the history that they're collecting is is high? Well, um, you learn techniques for asking open ended questions so that you're not accidentally leading um, your interviewee. You learn techniques on how to properly set up the camera, how to frame things, um, how to you know work with sound. You learn techniques, uh, very basic techniques. Um, you learn techniques on how to make your interviewee comfortable so that uh, you know you do get a better interview than you would if you know you did it in a kind of a jarring way and you disappeared and started recording. Um, so you learn a lot of those soft techniques and um, how to have the right mindset for an interview, how to deal with emotional moments, those types of things. And then they also get access to massive questionnaires that they can then, um, you know, uh, customize to the needs of their particular interviewees' experiences. So you're using the information that you're receiving from the collecting all of this information to then give back to people and to help them refine their their approach and stuff like that. Um, yes, absolutely. Yeah. That's really brilliant. I, I want to take it. Um, cool. Yeah, I'd love to do that. I know that there's a lot yeah. of, a lot of. I mean, you know, my Northern Virginia where I live is uh, has a really big Punjabi community, and it'd be really interesting to kind of uh, connect with folks out here uh, in that way. 
Yeah, and if you take the workshop and you successfully submit one story, then you are considered by us a citizen historian. <gasps> you even get a certificate. Oh, I'm always down for a certificate. <laughs> and it's endorsed by uh, both our organization and the Stanford University Libraries. Awesome. Yeah. Oh, that's really that's really amazing. Um, so I wonder if we can um, change gears a little bit to talk about the content of these um, these interviews. Um, I guess, generally speaking, how do the stories of individuals inform our understanding of the broader events of partition? I know that's a really big question, but I uh, wonder how you'll, you, you'd approach that. Yeah, so that process is only just beginning. I mean, we the stories are not even out there yet. We are just starting to work with Stanford University Libraries and bringing access to these stories because these are massive video files and YouTube is definitely not the way to put them out there because you are working with human testimony that's very sensitive. Um, so we are working with libraries to put them out there, but that hasn't happened yet. It's a very high resource kind of project. Um, and so once that happens, once the archive is out there in a few years in a bigger way, we do expect more of that work to happen. Uh, but in these initial days, we already have a lot of clues about um, how the people's history can, you know, vastly change our understanding of the time of partition. Um, let's take, for example, you know, very basic stuff like the Indian and Pakistani and Bangladeshi identities. Um, now, in uh, the modern current generations, a lot of young people feel very connected, especially in India and Pakistan, to their identities. And, um, you know, in Bangladesh, there's still the memory of 1971. So they don't feel, they understand that there was a finite time of the existence of their identity. But in India and Pakistan, uh, these identities feel eternal. Um, yet what's really fascinating is uh, every other person we interview did not identify as either Indian or Pakistani in 47 or before. People often identified with their uh, regional geographies or kingdoms. And um, that's really interesting because we feel so wed to these so-called ancient Indian identities, which, um, you know, didn't necessarily actually exist Uh and even the word India, if you dig into it a little bit, um, it's actually a Greek of Greek origin, and it it comes from the name of the Sandhu River, which is called the Indus River in um, you know European languages, or in English, I guess. And um, and it's it's fascinating because it was mostly you know the Persians and the uh, Greeks and so on, they used to call the people, it was a geographical term, people living east of the Indus River were called Hindus. It was not a religious term. So you you start to dig into these uh, ancient histories when you hear enough of these people's stories and you're like, wow, this kind of goes against everything I've ever known to be true. Um, so that's just one. And there's, there's many, many other things like that, like the source of the violence, the cause of the violence during partition, and, you know, the general understanding of that versus the new understanding that's emerging from the oral histories. I think that, yeah, and that's that's really brilliant, and I think we're going to come to that shortly. Um, I suppose, I guess that leads well into the, the next uh, question, which is, so conversely, do we find the broader material and political realities uh, around partition filter into these stories of, of the individuals that you're interviewing? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 
the broader realities um, and the politics of the time definitely filter into the people's stories because they affected people's lives so um, dramatically. Um, so, but what's interesting is that you really get a sense of the diversity of experiences of how different people experienced the political realities mm. at the time, how many people were not really interested or involved. They were just interested in living their day-to-day -day lives. And the political realities, despite them trying to avoid them, uh, you know, they were imposed in a very huge way, in an unavoidable way, through them having to move and things like that. Um, forcefully moved at the time of partition for many people. So... And then, you know, you've had people whose families fought in the freedom movement, and that's really fascinating mm. to see how that dynamic unfolded. Um, you have people whose families were soldiers in the British Army. Mm. And that's interesting, too, because we don't often think of um, the British personnel in a sympathetic way, right. uh, you know, in modern South Asia. Um, but a lot of British families were settled in South Asia for a few generations, and they also were uprooted. So, you know. Yeah, aside from the decision makers, right. um, if you look at people as a whole, right. just regardless of their ethnic background, uh, it was a difficult time for many. Are you finding commonalities between people beyond these various seeming delineations of race, religion, caste, or, you know, et cetera, that when you hear the human story, these individual stories that people are facing in relation to these broader, more like structural or political or material realities um it seems like there's a, a kind of a, a melting away of these these apparent divisions in terms of people's experiences would you would you find that true or have any insight into that absolutely yeah absolutely i find that to be completely true and i think that is probably one of the biggest things to come out of the stories is that um they create uh, a source of empathy mm -hmm. because now you can start to see other humans as people um, having similar experiences to yourself and you can relate to them and regardless of their religion or caste or any of that uh you know uh, identifying thing right category um so you alluded to earlier uh communal violence or this sort of interreligious violence and from just previous episodes of the show and, and my own reading it seems that this communal violence between religious groups is a, a prominent feature of this period. Um, and how do we, how do some of these stories that we've found uh, help us understand the unfolding of this violence? Well, um, what's interesting is, you know, quite often in the pop culture, you hear of neighbors killing neighbors right. and turning against one another. Now, a vast majority of the stories tell us something different. Sure, there were instances where neighbors did kill neighbors, but those were the minority. In vast majority of the cases, people were looting people that they did not know and attacking, going to neighborhoods um, in villages further away from their own village and attacking people that they did not know. And the motivation, and because you know we've also interviewed people who were attackers, the motivation quite often was something as simple as loot, like right. just getting, um, you know, material uh, wealth. Mm -hmm. uh, and other times it was for kidnapping women. Right. These were some of the primary reasons for, um, you know, the violence. 
uh, quite often people were sort of uh, led by local political leaders. What would happen is, um, suppose, you know, a big caravan of Muslim refugees were to come from what became India into some region of Pakistan, the local leaders and lawmakers would become overwhelmed. They would be like, okay, where are we going to put all these people? They'd say, okay, well, let's empty out all these Hindu homes. Wow. So then they would ignite riots against the Hindus. And this kind of went out of control and viral on both sides of the border, this sort of thing. That's really interesting. That paints such a different picture from what I think is commonly understood of these sort of, again, it's amazing how we see this seemingly over and over again in in Indian history or in, the, in this in history of the subcontinent where you have what is um, purported to be these sort of communal or like interreligious, like uh, spontaneous acts of just horrible violence, but are as you're saying here, seem to be a majority of the time the very directly led by uh, political factions, not even just like people's individual political leanings leading them to something, but very literally being led by political leaders to do these these acts of violence. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So um, people were led by local leaders, um, big and small. And people were led. People didn't just spontaneously like erupt. Um, that's what we're finding. But interestingly, um, you know, the violence stopped very abruptly hmm. when, um, uh, when I guess military groups that were ethnically different than Punjabis and Bengalis were introduced in the region. Because what was happening with the local police and the local uh, lawmakers was that they themselves were confused as to which side they belonged wow. in. Um, and who they should be defending, right? Right. Because there was a divide that um, penetrated even the armed forces. Uh, but when the military, the Baloch military, or uh, you know the Madras uh, military, or the Gorkhas were brought in, um, the violence was under control very, very quickly. Um, do you have any insight as to why that is? Um, yeah, because the military, when they were ethnically not related to Punjabis or Bengalis, they were um, they were impartial. Right. They did not take sides of Hindus or Muslims. They were literally just there to stop attackers from attacking people, <laughs> right? <laughs> Regardless of the attacker's ethnicity. But you know, the local police and the local military was very confused because. Um, suppose you're in the military, you're Punjabi, you're Sikh, and you see, um, you know, you see a Sikh man attacking uh, a Muslim person. Uh, what are you going to do? Are you going to take the side of the Sikh man or are you going to defend the Muslim person that you're supposed to be defending? Right. You start to think about, you know, you start to align. Right. And things got very confusing. So you couldn't trust the uh, local lawmakers and law enforcement. Uh, agencies anymore mm. and you had to bring people from the outside who were not ethnically related um something that we've talked about on this show is the sort of hardening of communal divisions in terms of like religious identity over the course of the kind of 19th late 19th and the 20th century with the advent of you know these these uh, voluntary bodies like the Singh Sabha and the Arya Samaj and and other groups do you get any kind of 
insight into that from these stories or from your research in terms of this this hardening of boundaries that maybe was less prominent previously? We do. I mean, we have um, interviewed people who were, you know, who talk about their fathers converting to the Arya Samaj from either Sikh families or Hindu families Mm. um, and so on. And you kind of see how that uh, affected people's local cultures and cultural practices and so on. But in terms of that, um, uh, you know, making the violence more dramatic uh, or even being a cause for the violence, I'm not quite so sure because that... Arya Samaj, for example, was a Punjabi movement. Mm -hmm. Uh, You didn't have it in Bengal, but you still saw the violence in Bengal, despite what people will tell you. Our stories tell us that the violence was very dramatic in Bengal. And so what kind of nuance might we gain from the personal perspectives of survivors about these communal altercations? Maybe what are some other kind of insights that maybe we we don't see in the popular retellings of these uh, of these events? Um, well, gosh, there's so much. Um, so like I said, there's like the identity issue, there's the uh, source of the communal violence issue. Um, then there's, uh, you know, the caste and uh, uh, the economic, uh, socioeconomic issues, like uh, people who... Maybe we can focus on, we can focus on caste and then we can, and we can move to socioeconomic. So... Okay, yeah. Yeah, what, well, what about that? Well, yeah. I think caste and socioeconomic are very closely tied. Um, oh, okay. The, well, then never mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, the so-called, uh, you know, uh, upper caste, um, I mean, who is, I guess it's self, uh, self-entitled self upper class, um, right. usually was economically well off. Uh, during partition, they flew across the border um, quite often, hmm. or they were in their own private cars and so on. Um, but quite often the, uh, people who suffered the most were, uh, well, the farmers also used, you know, were not necessarily economically challenged, um, but they didn't have access to the planes and stuff. So they were the ones who were traveling in these long caravans and gaflas that took like a month to cross the border and that Mm. were like 40 miles long, um, but in terms of, um, you know, the so-called, lower class or the people who were doing the so-called menial jobs, people who were the sweepers and doing household work um, and so on. Uh, now, quite often we've heard uh, stories from that community that when there was violence, their um, employers would quite often push them to the front lines. So they became wow. the victims and the pawns of a lot of the... Uh, stuff happening, a lot of the violence and events and occurrences happening between the Hindus and the Muslims. Um, And by front lines, you mean they would have been sort of victims of violence, but also possibly perpetrators because of their social status. Yes, exactly. Wow, that's really fascinating. That's that's very insightful. Um, so, So it sounds to me a little bit like the common story that we've been understanding is one of these sort of different religious identities that spontaneously rise up against each other. Uh, it's this horrible tragedy caused by this arbitrary line that's created. Uh, and then everybody just went nuts um, because they didn't know, you know, where they should be and they started killing each other. But it sounds a little bit like 
the stories that we're hearing are talking about a much more nuanced kind of layered story of people's material realities compelling them towards like towards violence and then even the material differences between lower and upper classes um uh, uh propelling propelling the violence between lower class people at the behest of political and and uh social elites yeah yeah i absolutely that happened <laughs> i mean that's such a different story i mean do you have any insight as to kind of what what that the difference between those sort of views of the of partition are rooted in yeah i think for one um you know a lot of the telling of the story of partition in the mainstream comes from uh comes from delhi from political leaders and observers hmm. of those political leaders who haven't um gotten a lens to look at the micro and haven't had any source of information on the micro secondly um on an individual level most people are only experiencing their one experience they haven't seen the experiences right. of other people so there's no understanding of the greater picture everybody had this mm. very myopic lens at that time and the story that became popular was probably the one that was told in delhi probably the one that was yeah. told from this like perspective of what the leaders were deciding and doing so it must have been that many people who right were who were surviving these things because literally what they saw was is that they were being aggressed by people from other religions, then the sort of uh, reactive understanding to that is as well, this is a, we're being attacked because we're from this religion, which I suppose on a, on a simple level is true. Like that is sort of a distinction that allowed for these, these, um, the, the, I guess created targets. It's a distinction that created targets for this kind of violence, but it isn't necessarily the motivating factor. Is that is absolutely? That make sense? I 100% agree with you. That's the, a really nice way to put it. Actually, it exactly it created a target, but it was not the motivating factor. It was just, uh, you know, that became the factor in the moment, and it could have been anything. People could have been uh, right fighting over skin color. They could have been fighting over caste. They could have been fighting over any, you know, just come up with something that divides people or that that's a, that's different right. between um, people. Uh, and it could have been anything. But in that moment, it was religion. I mean, one of the examples I use to people um, or use to explain this to people is what would happen today in your city? Or, you know, if you live in a tiny little town, what would happen today in New York City if you took the police away for just a day? Hmm. The have-nots, um, people who are economically challenged, uh, will most likely go after. They will go for the loot. They will go to enhance their, you know, their economic yeah. well-being. And I mean, we saw sure. this during Hurricane Katrina. I mean, some people I know will not necessarily believe this. They'll say that it, this is uh, a sort of a uh, what do you call it? A negative perspective or a dark perspective. But I'm just looking yeah. at what you know, what we've observed in places like when Hurricane uh, yeah. Katrina happened, uh, when, you know, the hurricane just recently happened in Puerto Rico, we heard of tons of looting. It's it's what happens. It It's, a, you know, and a window of opportunity for somebody who's starving and who needs that economic comfort. 
to go and get it very quickly. <laughs> well, absolutely. I mean, it, it makes perfect sense. And I don't think that that is or should be a, a, a controversial thing to say. I mean, what um, I mean, what did uh, Martin Luther King Jr. say about riots, but that they're the language of the unheard, right? Like absolutely, that they're, yeah. Right? So it's like, of course, people are going to people who don't have the means to uh, a get themselves out of the hurricane in advance, um, you know, B secure some sort of some sort of, you know, other place to live after the events of the hurricane who don't have, you know, maybe national networks or um, generational wealth to fall back on um, are going to go get a TV or, uh, you know, clothing or blankets or, you know, God knows what. And it's, I mean, it's like, yeah, no, it makes absolutely perfect sense to me. Like it's, it, it shouldn't be something that is, uh, that is, fra that is like, to me, it's the, the, it's a reactionary way to understand that, like to look on at judgment at folks who, who are basically just trying to survive. Um, and then even if it's not about pure survival in the moment, in terms of the items that they're looting, the financial gain however meager they might get from say selling or trading those items is worth it to them to to partake in that and so it's like you know i mean we have to look at the structural and societal factors to to appreciate that more absolutely absolutely uh, i think that's right? really well put so um i wonder if you can walk us through like through looking at these individual stories, maybe how you mentioned how people of more means um, might have literally just flown across the border, um, but maybe how different people of, of different means, um, what they're, if there is, are, if, you, if we can paint in broad strokes, and I don't know if that's, if you think that that's useful, how people of sort of different means or maybe different communities did find their way through these events, and that might have been folks who stayed or, or folks who did cross the border. Yeah, so it's really interesting because vast majority of the people that we've interviewed who, um, you know, would qualify as peasants or farmers, um, I prefer the latter term, uh, mm. and quite often we hear from them that they still to this day don't really know what happened or why they had to move. Right. And, wow. you know, that is the most tragic thing of all. There's no closure. Um, people wow. in the yeah. cities, quite often, people who were educated, were reading the newspapers, were well-informed, maybe had friends in the bureaucracy and government, had a much better idea of what was going on. And they um, prepared many people in, you know, those circles uh, sold properties at the right time and, mm. um, you know, were fine at the time of partition. They flew out of their right. cities. Um, so that's the difference that the difference is that a vast majority of the people, um, never really got their closure. Hmm. And what did that look like? I mean, did, did, what did it look like for people who, who were as you see, farmers or, or, um, folks that were not, in tune with these broader goings on and, and didn't have the access to information and education. I mean, what, is there maybe a, a recurring story or, or theme in terms of like this happened, which then led me to do this regardless of 
reasoning or or broader re- um causes? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But let me give you a story that demonstrates this. There's a man um um uh, whom I had interviewed who told me the story. So this guy was, you know, it was a hot, hot summer day. It was in August, and you know how the temperatures out here can get into the hundred and twenties, uh, one twenties Fahrenheit. Right. And he was out there wearing uh barely any clothes he as he describes it he was in his underwear um and he had uh you know a tool a gardening tool in his hand he was crouched down and uh you know working with the soil and uh suddenly he heard gunshots in the village behind him and then people in the farm just said to run and they all pointed in a direction and they just ran through the farms and he didn't know where he was going but you know he just knew to run he was running from the mobs and eventually he ran into a caravan and the people in the caravan were like oh come with us and so he stayed with the caravan and then you know uh weeks later he kept walking with them he ended up in india in his underwear and the only thing he had with him was this instrument this tool so complete shock has no idea where his family is or even if they survived or didn't survive now i don't remember the rest of the story but that's all i remember uh, I remember that because it's just so incredibly shocking that something like that could happen. Yeah. You know, he's just a normal guy in the farm, in the fields. Yeah. And that was the experience of millions of normal people just going about their day. So it was like a wave, just like a, a tsunami kind of all of a sudden. Yeah, altered their life in a second and they just never figured out what happened. I mean, this happened to Milka Singh. We know the famous story, you know, from the movie, mm. the Bollywood movie that came out about his life. Um, he literally also ran in a moment's notice. And, you know, his father yells, Pog Milka Pog. And that's the name of the film. God, that just adds that. It's like shivers. Like it just kind of puts my hair on end. Just yeah. like imagining that reality. Yeah, absolutely. I've never... I, I, I wrote, I just, I tweeted out the other day, I just was reading about, I was reading kind of in preparation to, for this interview and, and reading different articles and stuff like that and reading accounts like what you're talking about. And it just, there are many horrible, horrible experiences for people in, in the planet's history, but I mean, it just sounds like hell. I mean, it just sounds like a living hell that all of a sudden like there are just these these you've no idea why you're you're made homeless in an instant and you just have roving bands of people that are just ready to kill and and rape at a a moment's notice that you're trying to avoid yeah it sounds like it sounds like really like what hell would be like i mean it's in many uh, many people call it Kaliyug, which means a- apocalypse, and it literally was like the zombie apocalypse because you did have like dying people like everywhere around you, or dead people. We often hear of that what that over a million people were killed uh, throughout we this don't even uh, know. events, but yeah, we, we don't know, we right? Don't know. That's like a very rough estimate. Very rough, and it changes by political party in India, so. Mm-hmm. Wow. I just had a conversation with, um, uh, I don't know if you know, Dr. Jasjeet Singh, uh, based in Leeds, uh, who he did a report um, on kind of 
like Sikh militancy in England, and um, it was it became it became like a part of this more recent conversation about uh, around the whole sort of controversy around Jagmeet Singh in Canada, sort of as he, how he, there was this sort of harping on uh, about being associated with Sikh militancy and, and all of this kind of stuff um, as like a way to defame him. And, and it really hearkened to uh, without getting into sort of the intricacies of that, something that came up in the conversation that I think was interesting and that connects to this, what we're talking about here is that um, the the words that people use to describe, um, in this case, Sikhs, but I think that it's something that can apply to various different uh, situations where you have like political or social upheaval. Um for example, Sikhs in the 20s, as a part of like the the uh, Akali, like Gurdwara, uh, like movement, were labeled as like fanatics, um, and then other Sikhs in different times throughout history and their their you know resistance to the state are labeled as like religious fanatics and stuff. When when often what's happening. And what what Justice studies found was that a lot of what was happening was much more social and political activism that happened to be by particular groups of people that were Sikhs. Absolutely correct. Um, Absolutely correct. Right? And, yeah. And so it's like we see this again and again and again where there's this sort of religious label of fanaticism or 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 kind of something that is pasted onto the um to people that are mobilizing around social material you know political issues and and it sounds to me like we're seeing this is like it's, it's just old hat yeah so it's it's very interesting uh, that 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 the 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 death numbers even change according to political parties and factions and stuff like that that down to the <laughs> what we would think would be sort of the maybe the easiest thing to agree on or or to respect or or not play with is just game it's just a part of uh it's 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 fair game in terms of uh strengthening political divisions and 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 whatnot absolutely so, absolutely completely agree by that can we talk about like generally speaking women's experiences of these of this period um, and sort of uh, how being a woman in around partition um, affected a person's experience. And also uh, maybe we can again, apply this sort of caste and class um, understanding to the experiences of different women. Um, I imagine that, that sometimes being a woman sort of negates your um, caste and, and class privileges uh, in, in some some degree, but I wonder if you can offer insight into that. Yeah, I've had um, I've discovered so many interesting things uh, that still need to be better understood. For one, I feel like um, in a way, women were exempt from religion. Because people, men of op different religions, were 
kidnapping women of the opposite religion and making them their wives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in a way, women did not belong to any religion. Uh, mm. But at the same time, you know, when the rioters came in, they were targeting men and women of a given religion. Um, so it's it's really interesting in that way, like uh, because you know, women Sikh women who were kidnapped by Muslim men or Muslim women who were kidnapped by Sikh and Hindu men changed their religion, and it was fine once that happened. Hmm. Um, so I, I find that to be interesting. Like the religious uh, sticker can be, you know, is it changes much more easily for women than it does for men. Men, it's mm-hmm. pretty much about what you know what you're born into, and that is what you are. Um, so, so that sounds like it speaks more to. I guess at least within the context of this this these societies of like a, a patrilineal understanding of of your community. Definitely more so, yeah. And in terms of women's experiences, one of the interesting things I've discovered is that it really depended on um the family. It was very family specific, uh, you know, philosophy of the family. Like um in some families, the women uh, in those families uh, were much more liberated and free-spirited mm-hmm. and able to express themselves. Like, we have um, heard so many stories of these Amazon women who were armed and protecting mobs. Um, mm-hmm. So clearly they had, you know, advanced training in martial arts. And uh, they belonged to farming families. Uh, we've also had, um, you know, really interesting... Uh, stories from women who were pursuing advanced studies and these were from sort of upper class families they were you know studying to become doctors and lawyers and so on this is in the 1940s you don't even hear of that in the united states as much but you heard that all over the subcontinent um so you hear these varied experiences and then you hear of women who were so sheltered regardless of whether they were upper class or lower class in their homes that they really didn't even know what was going on outside the homes and they were very Mm. vulnerable um, you know, to the decisions made by the men in their families. Mm. And like, you know, a lot of, in some families, especially in the Northwest frontier region and in uh, uh, Northwestern Punjab, uh, a lot of uh, men had pretty much made the decision to fight to their death when the mobs came in. And the women who weren't trained to fight were basically asked to commit suicide or the men were, uh, in charge of, you know, killing them. Hmm. Um, so and this was, this was, uh, a, 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 a in, in, in the effort to, I suppose, uh, preserve a sense of, I guess, and this is speaking from the perspective of, of those people to preserve their honor or, or, or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, there's the preserve the honor and there's also like, um, do you want to just, you know, die on your own, or do you want to be, uh, I guess, dishonored and then die, or lose your honor and then die? Right, which is, of course, uh, right. Not not the term that I, or the way that I would think about um, a woman being a victim of sexual violence right. uh, as somehow losing honor, of course, but but I suppose in the, the cultural sort of understanding of the time. Right. So... So what do we see as some of the 
I mean, obviously, every men, women, high class, low class are experiencing um, this this reality. Um, what is some of the legacy that we find now? Because of course, we're talking to people long after, um, long after the events. Um, and so I'm, I'm assuming you get to see kind of, uh, how that affects people's lives in the long term. So I wonder if there's maybe, you know, again, along these sort of different, maybe different experiences, how you see these events affecting people's perceptions and lives, including like mental health and, and societal, uh, community health. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I'll refer to, um, events that, uh, are better studied in this regard, and I think a lot of that translate to the uh, translates to the partition as well. And mm-hmm. um, I mean, let's look at the world wars and let's look at the Holocaust. We know now mm-hmm. from uh, very uh, you know long term studies that um, the next generations of people who've uh, experienced violence are more prone to high anxiety, and that's not just in their attitude, it's actually genetic. In fact, they found that for Holocaust survivors, um, their children were 40% more likely, Holocaust female survivors, by the way, their children were 40% more likely to have a gene for extremely high anxiety because it keeps you vigilant in times of danger. Um, wow. Yeah, and, and then you know something similar with the potato famine. They found that people who had survived the famine, their children... Uh, we're more likely to have a gene for obesity. So this is epigenetics. Mm. It's where, you know, your um, yes. uh, your body chooses, uh, helps select for the genes through your hormones and stuff, signals for the genes that are going to be better for survival in a given condition. And so, so imagine a population that's like way more high anxiety <laughs> than the previous yeah. generations. And, you know, North India does have way higher instances of violence today than southern india these are just things to think about Mm. i mean i'm not saying there's been any study on this but i'm just i'm just extrapolating from my own personal observations which are not scientifically done in any way but just (laughs) just a lay person's observation um so i think these things do make a huge difference whether uh, we want to admit to them or not well and it's so interesting because a lot you know, I, I remember like living in Punjab. Um, there's almost like a trope in terms that you hear in conversations where, especially among Sikhs, um, actually among a lot of people, where they talk about, uh, you know, there was a time when to wear the star and to be a part of this community meant something, and now everybody's an alcoholic and a drug addict, or everybody is, you know, this or that, and and. and you know, there's this sort of like, sort of um, a a meme of societal or spiritual decay, um, I find. And I think that that maybe is something that we find elsewhere as well. But, but just from my own personal sort of experience, that a lot of the times people kind of go, oh, well, it's, uh, you know, it's the songs or it's the music or it's the money or it's the, you know, Western culture or, or, or just you know people have forgotten with our 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 root our roots or our philosophies and stuff like that and 
you know, I'm not really going to contend with 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 that aspect of things. But what I often did not hear was sort of um, a, a more structural understanding of like, well, like, look, you know, like folks. Folks have just just now, I mean, in the terms of of history, very recently lived through an apocalypse. You know what I mean? Like a, a very tangible, close to home apocalypse um where you know sexual violence is rife uh you know um, you know where you're kind of in constant fear of mortal danger um and and so i think like you know no wonder um i mean on, on top of that we have all of the various political um and social events that happen after partition and, and lead us into today in, in north india and punjab where there's been sort of different acts of you know, you have genocide in 84, but then you have all these you know, other acts of communal violence and um, political violence, et cetera, throughout, throughout these decades. It's like, well, and, and then on top of that, um, you know, something that you and I spoke about offline was when we were talking about like, uh, you know, just water rights and, and the kind of the shrinking opportunities of people and, and, in Punjab and, and North India and um, like how these societal and structural realities might lead people towards this kind of alienated, individualized, you know, you have, um, um, you know, people seeking sucker in in substances or in, um, you know, uh, yeah, like alcoholism or you have, you know, an opioid epidemic, I believe. And, 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 and other, you know, drug issues and stuff like that. You have, you know, rampant sexual violence and and things like this. That, you know, it seems to me like um, we have to have an understanding of these things from a broader, like, structural perspective uh, to understand with like how you you begin to even combat those. And that I assume would be in India and in Punjab, but also in, in the diaspora and the communities that are directly connected to these events. Yeah. Um, I mean, do you have any insight into that or? Yeah, absolutely. Um, to an extent, definitely. I think it's all connected. Uh, but, you know, in terms of the uh, drug abuse and alcohol abuse, I think there's an even more recent reason for that. And it is connected to partition. It's, um, you know, everything that happened after 1984, the so-called mm. insurgency, um, I mean, it led to a lot of uh, young boys getting demoralized because there were so many young boys that went missing and yeah. a lot of opportunities from young boys um, being taken away in terms of being able to go to school and college. And then there's reports of, you know, government agents actually implanting uh, drugs and helping to ignite drug addictions uh, during that time to help suppress what yeah. they thought was an uprising. Um, so I think there are, you know, it is related to partition, but maybe not quite uh, what's going on in Punjab today because in the 70s, Punjab was okay. thriving gotcha. again. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So, so it is connected in terms of uh, some of the political realities that stem from the kind of the, the, the realities around partition, right. but but this, this more recent... Um, instance of of violence and trauma it might have more of a connection to these things that we're seeing now yeah absolutely. um 
Okay, yeah, that that makes perfect sense. Um So, what um what what do you what are some maybe broad takeaways of the the work that you've done so far? Uh and what would you like to in terms of like accomplishments and sort of or, or maybe like benchmarks that you, you know, things that you wanted to do, places you wanted to reach? And then where do you want to see this go and and ultimately how would you like to see it serving uh like what broad purpose would you like to see it evolve into serving yeah um so in terms of our uh near-term goals uh we are looking to expand uh to geographies that you know are maybe a little bit inaccessible um for those of us living in cities um and also are a little bit unheard um, for mm. instance, we have a scholar recording stories in the Sundarbans mangrove forests, and there the story is oh, wow. that a lot of people there are becoming our first climate refugees. And it turns mm. out that the Sundarbans were largely uninhabited before partition, and most of the uh, mass migration into the Sundarbans came at the time of partition. Um, Can you share what the Sundarbans are for folks yeah, who might not know? Absolutely. So the Sundarban mangrove forests uh, basically straddle West Bengal and India and Bangladesh. And um, they're basically low-lying mangrove forests that are sea level. Um, and they have probably one of our last um, man-eating tiger populations. There's a lot of awesome. other, uh, you know, uh, incredible but um, precarious wildlife there, like yeah. crocodiles and pythons and other snakes that um, it's, it's not easy for a uh, your average person to survive there. Sure. Yeah. And a tribal person who's been living there for hundreds of years, um, they have, you know, indigenous knowledge systems and they understand how to navigate that environment. But um, people who were placed there at the time of partition didn't know and they ended up succumbing to a lot of the uh, environmental hazards. So you have this disproportionately high number of widows there and they're called the tiger widows. I mean, the tigers are endangered too because their habitat was displaced by the people. So it's a, it's it's a sad story for both sides. Um, and you know, those tigers are endangered at this point. Um, and in terms of tigers in the wild in the Sundarbans, they're actually, believe it or not, very hard to sight. There are areas where you sight them a lot, but I found out when I was there very sadly that those areas, those are not even the wild tigers. Those are bred for the tourists. <laughs> No way. Yeah. So there is this seven mile long cage that you can walk in, a caged walk, which I like the concept huh. of that. The humans are in the cage. Uh, yeah. You know? <laughs> and, um, but anyway, we're getting away from the topic. The, yeah. the point is that. <laughs> well, I think we need to hear from the tigers yeah. on this issue to get kind of both sides of the story. Seriously, seriously. Um, so, so yeah. So, you know, basically these displaced people in the Sundarbans were, not given land in um, in Bengal, uh, mainland Bengal, or the big cities because they happened to belong to the lowest caste. So they were given land in the Sundarbans, which is considered like a wasteland. Right. And um, now they're having to become partitioned refugees. Mm. Um, so it's a kind of a very, you know, it, it, this is how caste plays into partition the role of caste yeah even the displaced so fine they survived the violence but where do they end up 
Right. You know, of course. And so, um, where do you, how do you, uh, like, what's the, the, you know, you get everything that you need, you get the funding, the time, the energy, the participation, like what, what does this, uh, archive and this mission evolve into and, and where do you see it? Uh, yeah. How do, what does its flourishing look like in your mind? Yeah. So, well, our first part of our mission has been accomplished, I would have to say. Um, the first part of our mission was to revive the memory of partition in a wider mm. public um, sphere. And mm. over the last you know, eight years since we began recording and sharing these stories, and when I say eight years, of course, the first few years, we were not a formal organization. And in very initial days, it was just me. <laughs> um, right. But let's just say, you know, since those early days when it was just me, um, for eight years, uh, we've been putting these stories out there on social media. And last year, these stories had uh, 20 million shares on social media. Um, and mm. we started to notice something really interesting. Like when we first started this work, there was so much resistance to this work from people. Mm. Um, people were scared to share their stories. People were scared to, uh, you know, talk about their experiences. They didn't trust us. Now we have the opposite issue of people vying to tell us their stories. Mm. Um, of people signing up, you know, in the hundreds at any given moment. Um, and so that is kind of where we are. Um, and also last year, there was a massive push by media around the world to cover partition. That hasn't happened before, really, um, to the right. extent that it did. And I think it has a lot to do with us popularizing it through social media and stories and it coming into the consciousness of so many people that they decided to do their own projects on it. And that, I feel, you know, bringing partition to widespread um, public consciousness, I think we've accomplished that. It's become a relevant conversation now. And um, uh, in terms of what else we want to do, well, we want to bring the story of partition through its you know, very nuanced uh, human perspectives. We want that accessibility to come to everyone so anyone can listen to enough stories and come upon their own conclusion. And we don't have to rely on um, you know, what, like, the three or four people uh, who've written textbooks on their personal vision of partition, or understanding of partition. We can come up with our own. Mm. And I hope that there are hundreds and thousands of studies that will come out of these stories. So these stories initially are going to go into libraries across the world. And we're already doing pilots in India. We've partnered with um, Stanford University Libraries in the U.S. to uh, on their digital platform, um, to get these stories streaming. And then we're partnering with Tata Trusts in the U.S., uh, sorry, in India, um, to get the streaming stories to libraries in India. And um, and that's really exciting. Uh, we're doing the same in Pakistan and the U.K. and Bangladesh as well. Um, and then eventually, uh, you know, we want to put out publications. Uh, we want to host conferences. So that's in the academic realm. But in terms of pop culture and influencing uh, or bringing to the attention of you know, the general public you know, the nuanced stories of partition, we are doing a number of exhibits. And our ultimate goal is to do not like a memorial, but like there is actually a partition museum now, and it is more of an exhibit um, based on mm -hmm. Wikipedia-level sort of understanding of partition. But what right. we want to do is we want to get into this very nuanced understanding through stories. We want to create a research center. Um, mm. So and a sort of a memorial that comes in the form of a research center. And that's our vision. Um, and, you know, something similar to what's been done in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, what's been done in um, 
uh, in Germany and so on. Well, I think that that's brilliant. And I, I, uh, I'm really, really happy that you were able to yeah, come on and talk about this work and where it's going. And I really hope that all of these things manifest and that folks listening who, you know, maybe, maybe somebody in their family or, uh, somebody that they know has, you know, experiences and stories like this and that wants to get involved in, in contributing, um, to these stories, uh, you know, do that. And I'll be sure to post uh, links to the resources to connect to this work, um, in the show description. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's a really, really incredible conversation. And I hope that you'll come back on. I'd love to hear more about, uh, these like women warrior Amazon, uh, groups that you're talking about earlier. That sounds like maybe the coolest, coolest thing I've ever heard. Yeah, I kind of um, want to hear more about that too. I'm hoping to hear more <laughs> stories on that. I'm hoping to hear from some of these women. Where, yeah, if you know, if you, hey, if anybody's out there listening, if your auntie is secret, like Amazon badass, <laughs> you know, we got to get those, we got to get those stories out there, totally. you know? So maybe she's, maybe she's been a little shy, you know, and you got to kind of coax it out of her, but just, just be real nice and, you know, Bring her some, bring her a gift and just be like, hey, like, can you tell me about the time that you and some ladies like linked up and were a formidable fighting force? Uh, no, but not to make light of that. That's really incredible. Um, really, really amazing thing I'd never heard of before. And I'd love to also hear more about. So yeah, yeah. No, we've yeah, heard I, it multiple times. So from multiple sources amazing. so we know it was true and it was all in the same district. It was in district Narawal in Pakistan. Wow. Yeah, so and there were, they, were some Amazon were, women warriors in that district that many people reported seeing. All right, if your family's from uh Nottawal, like you got to got ask about the Amazon women. Were they were they six or do we know what religion they were or what um, communities they were no, from? No, I don't think or? anybody really knew that. And no nobody reported huh. on their religion per se, but they could sure. have been anything. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, of course. That's amazing. Okay, cool. Well, I hope you come on again and I hope we can, uh, yeah, I, I'd love to, I think there's so, so much to discuss and um, I, it was really great having you on and, and uh, we'll, we'll talk to you again soon, I hope. Yeah, thank you so much for having me and for, you know, discussing this topic that's so close to my heart. Thanks, everybody, for joining us this week. Uh, please be sure to follow me on Twitter at Shabbat Singh, on Instagram at Shabbat dot one, O-N-E, and you can always find us at theonepodcast.com for all of the uh, reviews that I write and, of course, all the episodes. But be sure to subscribe on whatever device uh, you listen to this on. There are multiple ways to subscribe on the website as well. And please tune in for the next episode in a couple of weeks. I'll be speaking to Dr. Jasjeet Singh of the University of Leeds about the ongoing use of language around uh, six in the media uh, and labeling six as extremists 
militants, etc. And the dehumanization and misinformation that that causes, where it comes from, the history of it, and where we're at with it today. It's obviously something that's been going on uh, since the inception of Sikhi and has been happening to many other communities as well uh, to cover up what are often uh, legitimate political demands by oppressed people uh, to then uh, label those people as some form of religious or ideological extremists um, to delegitimize their movement and otherize them and often make them targets. So please tune in for that. Otherwise, uh, yeah, please share this and uh, hope to see you next time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I wanted to ask. I I wanted to ask you on air as well, like why your name is Gunita Singh. Oh, well, my grandfather was a bit of a feminist, and he felt that uh, by having Singh and Carr, it actually created a um, gender imbalance. Um, and he mm. felt that uh, both genders should have the same last name. So he named me Singh so that people wouldn't uh, discriminate against me for being a female. Oh, why, 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 why.